1: Greetings and welcome to this new episode of New Books Network. My name is Joaquin Rivaya-Martinez. I am an Associate Professor of History at Texas State University and will be the host of this interview. Today we will be chatting with Dustin Tamakera about his book Cinematic Comanches, The Lone Ranger and the, In the Media Borderlands, which was published by the University of Nebraska Press this year of 2022. Maruaboe, Dustin, good evening from southern Spain, which means... I guess, good morning to you over there in Oklahoma.
0: Hey, Madoe, Joaquin, yes. Uh, Good morning from here, Uh, Chickasaw, Comanche, Kiowa, Apache, so many other shared contested territories, uh, Norman, Oklahoma.
1: All right. Welcome to New Books Network, and thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you. Dr. Dustin Tamakera is an enrolled citizen of the Comanche Nation of Oklahoma and an Associate Professor of Native American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. He has previously worked at the University of Illinois and the University of Texas, among other institutions. Professor Tamakera holds a PhD in American Culture Studies from Bowling Green State University, and he was a Fellow of the Humanities Research Institute at the University of Illinois. He is an interdisciplinary scholar of North American indigeneities, critical media, and sound. He also is a playwright, scriptwriter, and voice voiceover artist, film consultant, indigenous film series curator, and documentary curriculum guide writer. Professor Tamakera's first book, Tribal Television, Viewing Native People in Sitcoms, was published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2014. It foregrounds representations of the indigenous, including native actors, producers, and comedic subjects in U.S., First Nations, and Canadian television and other media from the 1930s to the 2010s, within the historical context of federal policy and social activism. Today, though, we'll be talking about his second book, Cinematic Comanches, The Lone Ranger in the Media Borderlands, which was released last January just a, a few months ago. Dustin, if that's all right with you, tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you are from and how you became a scholar.
0: Sure. Well, in the Nama uh, Tequap, Comanche language, again, I say, ah, Madowe uh Nananiasa, Dustin Tamakera, Nakut Sukani, Nakut Wai, Kusi Okwe. it's good to be with you, Joaquin, and, and thank you for, for this opportunity and, and to the listeners out there um, for for being able to to speak about some of this newer work on our Comanche people and you know my my history of of doing this kind of work um you know, for the people and uh, trying to really counter a lot of the research that's out there about us, uh, that is without us, um, is to really try to center Comanches and uh, within these larger, you know, borderlands types of stories. And my own background um, of being born there in Comanche Nation capital in Lawton, uh, growing up mostly just South of there, across uh, the Pia Pasawana or the the Red River, uh, about forty five minutes south of there in the Wichita Falls, Texas area, an area where my great 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 grandfather Quana Parker uh, was known to travel often and to to camp out uh, with uh, some of the white ranchers and the oil men like uh, those from the Burnett family. Um, that's that's where you know I come from uh, geographically and territorially. And uh, you know grew up like a lot of folks of uh, being exposed to various you know cultural influences and 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 pop, lots of pop culture and television and, and various musics back in the day and really carrying those experiences with me uh, on into academia and um, you know working my way through uh, through studies and you uh, native studies and english and literature and and drama and media uh and and going forth and and really trying to to tell some of these stories uh the stories that are okay to share that uh you know to relate back to you know to comanches and to other natives to non-natives uh, in these borderland stories that tie so many of us together, and to, to go forth and, and to really try to make sure that Comanches are not marginalized any more than we already have been, um, and to not be relegated to just the background roles, to but to rather be very much agents uh, who you know with so much creativity and intelligence and um and flaws and just all the things that go with you know with being humans uh, and to go forth and tell those stories that i like to call uh, being Mm comanche-centric
1: were there any particularly influential figures uh, or any mentors that you um that were particularly influential in your case
0: yeah so as an undergrad um (laughs) many many years ago uh you know i was one of those uh what i often say wandering undergrads um you know which is interesting considering that uh, my great 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 grandfather petanakona you know and his name often being translated as as wanderer as as moving around You know, my own case, my own context. There was just almost uh, drifting around, and not for sure what I wanted to do, and um, and and almost without aim or direction. But knew that it was something creative. There's always been this creativity that uh, that I've inherited from you know from the Anglo side and the Comanche sides of 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 my family lineage, and. There was one particular class that I started to take because a buddy of mine was in the class, and so we could hang out more in there. But it became uh, really life changing for me, and that was with the late uh, the professor, the late Doctor Jeff Campbell, there at Midwestern State University in Wichita Falls, Texas, uh, near where I grew up. And uh, he's someone who just really turned me on to knowledge, and I always even had this feeling of, you know, as much as I tried to hide in the back of a classroom and not say anything, uh, I sensed, you know, when he was going to call on me and there'd be this pause as if looking at my name again and saying, Mr. Tamakira, you know, what, what What do you think? And it was, again, just someone who came in and turned me on to knowledge and was just dazzling with the multimedia that he could pack into 50-minute class sessions three days a week and uh, so I'd like to think that you know some of what I do today is is to honor him and to continue you know with with his legacy uh, of, of the good work he was doing also um, back home there in the Lawton area um, my late auntie Juanita Pataponi, to whom the book Cinematic Comanches is dedicated to her memory uh, and to her legacy Of trying to continue doing this work of storytelling you know she was my main uh, cultural teacher as she was for so many comanches and even non-natives back home in lawton Um, and so it's to think about you know the the work that she did as an artist as an educator um, as a film festival organizer as a consultant in film she you know, as a poet, she was doing so many of the things that um, that I'm attempting to do, hopefully in a in a good way now. And so, really want to continue her legacy. Uh, those are a couple of the individuals. There's there's so many. You know, there's my mom, there's my grandmother, um, there's you know uncles. Uh, there's just so many who have helped pave the way for for um, for me to to pursue education and to keep pursuing education all the way to the doctorate level and, uh, and now to, to try to make use of my voice in um, creative and intellectual ways as well, obviously in, in audible ways
1: like we're doing here. Mm-hmm. So Dustin, you're, you're in a privileged position uh, because you are both a cultural insider to Anglo culture and to Comanche culture. Tell us a little bit about the process of researching and writing cinematic Comanches. What was it like?
0: That's a good question. Um, You know, early on, I mean, I knew it it had to be uh, relational. Uh, It had to be accountable uh, and responsible. And it was to do this work in a way that can honor uh, my ancestors and my relatives today uh, and for future generations, you know, who want to know more about what it was like in this moment, at least through my perspective, through my experiences, you know, if I could say so humbly. And it was to be really responsible toward Anglos, toward Comanches, and toward also trying to think about, um, you know, all the other groups, you know, who are, who are in these contested and coexisting uh, borderlands across. You know, what's currently known as as West Texas and on into Colorado and down into northern Mexico and all across Oklahoma, parts of Kansas. You know, this large uh, swath of land, hundreds of thousands of acres that was not named by us, but was named, you know, about us and recognized our presence known as La Comancheria uh, of Comanche country. And also to you know, be thinking about our own migration stories, as I talk about early on in the book, of trying to orient readers into how Comanche-centric this book is trying to be by relating some of our own, you know, one of the accounts of, of our origins with the Shoshone people up in Wyoming in the Great Basin region and, and the ones who broke away and became known as Namana or um, later you know, as, as Comanches and migrating across the Rockies and into present-day Oklahoma. Uh, we're a unique people in, in many ways because Oklahoma becomes this, this gathering place of forced removals for so many Native folks coming from uh, the Southeast, like the Seminoles and Chickasaws, and coming from the Midwest, you know, like the Shawnees and others. Uh, but You know, and the folks coming from the north, you know, Cheyennes and and Kiowas. And while we have, you know, our own stories of forced captivity um, that we conducted, but that also was imposed upon us, uh, we also found ourselves being put right back at what was already home, uh, right there in the heart of Comanche country, uh, the Wichita Mountains, as you know, our former chairman Wallace Coffey calls it, that heart of Comanche country. And so it's a it's a unique kind of positionality, and for so many of us, uh, like myself, who are mixed, you know, we have models to turn to. Uh, My great 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 grandfather, Quana Parker, son of Peyton Nakona, and the white captive turned Comanche Cynthia Ann Parker, you know, he is like me. He has a Comanche father and an Anglo or white mother. And he, you know, attempted to honor both and attempt to bridge cultures. And I think that's some of the better work that we can try to do in this world of um, honoring those who helped us to be here and to uh, go forth and really try to build those bridges. And uh, while staying true to ourselves and to sometimes multiple worldviews um, and looking at how those can coexist rather than just uh, always being in tension with each other. There's, there's plenty else tension and, and um, violence and heated disputes already out there. And, and some of our history very much comes from, you know, as a result of, of Borderlands violence, but there's also so many other stories like I try to tell in this book uh, of Comanches representing Comanches and going forth and uh, showing diplomacy and showing collaborations
1: mm-hmm. So I understand that's actually that building bridges and and that um, and, and giving agency to Comanches themselves, including you as an author is, is one of the main purposes of your book. but were there any other goals or or when you set forth in this adventure of writing this book was there any overarching goal that you had in mind?
0: Well, you know, thinking even in an academic kind of context, um, you know, having this interdisciplinary background in media studies and in Native and Indigenous studies, you know, I've long found, even with my first book, Tribal Television: uh, Viewing Native Peoples and Sitcoms, that you mentioned earlier, there, there's this huge field of Native American studies in this huge field of media or critical media studies. And so often the two are not conversing with each other. And I've long you know, argued that uh, to, to really better understand uh, a people and cultural ways that it makes sense, especially in this day and age, and and it has for, for centuries now, among Comanches in particular, uh, to consider you know, intercultural mixing and uh, pop cultural remixes that you know that that play out uh, between cultures, and that the lines get really blurred. You know, it's not as some folks try to argue about Quana Parker that once he went onto the reservation, you know, in 1875, that somehow that meant he just assimilated. It was quite the opposite. It was that he recognized certain things in the so-called white world that he could adapt to and that he was already adapting to and that he could even honor his Anglo ancestry by doing. But he never stopped being Comanche, you know, and we can point to Marker's uh, like him keeping his long hair and, and his braids, but it's also there's so much creatively and intellectually that he's doing um, to where you don't just suddenly turn off the past 30, 40 years of one's experiences and one's ways of thinking. Uh, and so when we have folks today who think that so many Native folks have just assimilated into a dominant culture, uh, it's, it's just not so easy as that. It's not this linear one-way route, uh, but rather um there's just these circular routes and detours that are constantly happening and um i think you know especially for for young folks you know i i know that as a former teenager myself you know there can be so much angst and so much uh insecurity and it and it can even carry over in, into adulthood but uh, rather, you know, than think someone is lesser than because of maybe how they phenotypically look or how they sound or what language or languages they speak or don't speak. Um, I I tend to follow the philosophy of uh, a dear Choctaw friend and relative of mine, uh, Leanne Howe at the University of Georgia, creative writer and professor there, And, you know, she talks about, you know, whatever she's doing, whatever she's saying or how she's being, you know, she's being Choctaw. Like, that's just what it is. And whether that's being at a powwow or being in ceremony or if it's watching a rerun of the Golden Girls, you know, it's 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 being Choctaw. And and it it helps to open up a more more flexible space uh, of talking about what it can mean to be Comanche. But I also think there can be something of a a risky slope there when if, if I wouldn't want listeners to think, okay, that means just anything I say or do, that's just being who I am. It's like, well, we could say that, but then we've got to also go back to what I was saying earlier about being relational, being accountable, being responsible. So, for example, when I get up in front of students or an audience and I say something that so many Native peoples before me have said, uh, when they say I can speak only for myself. That doesn't really get us off the hook of anything. It just means I can speak only for myself. You know, I may be the one or one of few native folks that some people in the audience ever encounter or interact with. So I say, you know, I speak only for myself, but I'm still being held accountable to the teachings that I've received. And it may be teachings that I agree with or. Find uh, certain wrinkles in, but nonetheless, it's it's honoring you know those who have helped pave that way for us to be where we're at, and then to go forth and be who we are. And if along the way that helps in building bridges and it helps bring about um, some kind of healing to a very hurt world, um, then I think that can be a good thing to be used in a in a good kind of way.
1: All right. So before getting into the nuances of your book, there are a couple of uh, expressions or concepts in in the title that may be worth um, defining or or telling our audience about. One of them is the the idea of media borderlands, and also the the very expression cinematic commands. Can you explain what you mean by these two? Sure. So, you know, media
0: borderlands is is obviously playing off of um, historians work uh, with borderlands like your own excellent work Joaquin and the work of Pekka Himalainen and Samuel Truitt, Brian DeLay and others um, of, of talking about the borderlands and especially thinking about uh, the late Gloria Anzaldua and and her ideas of borderlands as these spaces, you know, where two or more cultures are, are sharing uh, and often fighting over shared lands in um, staking their own claims of a jurisdiction over these lands. And it could be the old timers, the indigenous who have long been there. It could be the newcomers. Uh, sometimes that could even be indigenous newcomers. Um, it could be, you know, the, the so-called colonizers who are coming in and thinking about where these cultures, you know, overlap and, and edge each other, as, as some historians call it. And then to add media to the borderlands uh, is to really think then how the borderlands and all those geographies and cultural ways are playing out and getting represented in uh, all kinds of ways in in digital spaces, in uh, old media, in new media, and to imagine, if you will, this vast Um, map that would be far bigger than I think what any single computer screen I've ever seen would be able to to fully capture and to start looking at, in this case, where cinematic Comanches or those who, you know, the Comanches and non-Comanches who have played Comanche roles in film and television and other media to start putting on a, on a, Virtual map of where these shows were filmed, where these films uh, took place, you know, in fictional settings and the very real uh, non fictional uh, locations that they're using. Um, and so, to give like one quick example, you know, Quana Parker, great 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 grandfather, starred in an old silent film, The Bank Robbery. You know, filmed in 1907, the same year that uh, Indian Territory, Oklahoma Territory, merged to become the 46th state of the Union, uh, known now as Oklahoma, and he was filming it right there in that heart of Comanche country uh, in the Wichita Mountains. And there's so many examples of that happening in the silent era and the early 1900s and 1910s of Comanches, essentially plain versions of Comanches in media borderlands of film that are on location in our homelands and doing that kind of work and so uh that's where you know i think for for me at least that's where cinematic comanches begins is in that silent film era of what quantum parker and his children white parker and lunata parker went on to do uh even in the 1920s in the film the daughter of dawn uh that were that were all filmed in oklahoma uh in the wichita mountains and we're seeing now even a uh, a return in the past 15 20 years of comanches playing comanches uh in films, independent cinema, in the Wichita Mountains, um, and so to look at how those roles play out in the media borderlands is to bring in questions of who is representing whom, um, you know, who is speaking for whom, who is filming whom. Um, there is, you know, our own phrase of of, uh, of who is shitting whom or who is getting one over on another. And it's not one sided. It's not a one sided borderlands, media borderlands, just like uh, the borderlands that historians have long been talking about. But rather, there's these circuitous routes that that unfold and continue to unfold um, in film, in television and other media uh, in which Comanches do dupe. Others, you know, they outsmart others, they uh, they show some of that Comanche continuity and that ongoing presence and the futurity, all of which I wanted this book to contribute to some of those conversations and especially for our young people to keep thinking and reimagining, you know, what is possible because nothing's impossible. In what we can do to strengthen our nationhood. And one way to do that is through these media borderlands, through cinematic Comanches in the production of the films that uh, the genre that I call Comancheria cinema of strengthening our nationhood and our expressing our sovereignty and going forth and doing that on our own terms and also in collaboration with others.
1: Yeah, which takes me to, to another question, another notion that is very important, especially early on in your book, which is the the notion of re- representational jurisdiction. What is it and why can it
0: be so controversial? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's a mouthful of a term. And and I tried to really limit the jargon in, in this book. And I really appreciated that reviewers, you know, picked up on that. But I also think that there's such a, a good place for, for jargon, right, that a term like representational jurisdiction becomes this. 30 40 syllable <laughs> phrase to to concisely somewhat concisely you know encapsulate uh, What I'm trying to get at throughout this book, these questions of who represents whom, who's speaking for whom, um, in what ways, you know, uh, that these things are, are playing out on screen and behind the camera, in front of the camera and behind the camera as critics and consultants and producers are putting forth their own ideas and responses to the work. So, representational jurisdiction involves all of those folks, and it also includes the actors. It includes the, the the sound folks. It includes everyone who's contributing to filmic discourse to these conversations about film. You know, in in to some extent, it's like everyone is staking a a, a type of claim to how, in this case, Comanches self-represent and or get represented by others. Uh, And so representational jurisdiction is somewhat as it sounds, is thinking about the ways in which uh, claims of jurisdiction of some kind of control and power and agency is happening through the very representations that happened on screen as well as representations uh, that writers put forth, the representations that we're speaking on in, in this interview here today. Uh, it's it's what critics are putting out there. Um, it's all these various ideas and trying to go forth, in my case, trying to be very proactive with it in, in you know, unapologetically addressing you know, the various examples that I do in this book and of how jurisdiction is playing out from directors to to film companies like Disney, to the independent companies uh, of what Comanche filmmakers are putting forth out there and what academics and writers have to say. But it also, to some extent, it's inevitably reactive and uh, reactive to the extent of responding to a lot of what we call like the 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 bullshit uh, of how Comanches have been represented, um, you know, and sometimes by folks who like SC Gwen, who gets a very uh, popular and loud uh, platform out there. Uh, and and doing this work of kind of a, a good old boys network that was already unfolding, you know, over a hundred years ago in academia, and you have writers like him who are basically rehashing uh, that work today and trying to you know make it really colorful and 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 uh, turn it into a uh, some kind of Hollywood like story, and uh, what it does is. Uh, it only tells part of the story, and true, any of us—that's probably the best we can do—is tell our parts of the story. Uh, but there's also ways to be more accountable and to be, um, especially, more relationally accountable. And so, when you have writers like Gwen and others who, you know, straight up, unapologetically refused to speak with us, um, then there's going to be repercussions for that, and there's there's going to be some backlash and um and so hopefully you know more listeners out there can can recognize that that gwen is not the be-all end-all of scholarship or writing um and that comanche peoples today do have so much to say um and what i can do is is listen to them and to learn from them and to go forth and share you know what might be shareable uh, and to use platforms like this and trying to speak forth, speak back and also speak forth, you know, in telling these these Comanche centric stories um, that don't hopefully dehumanize us or limit us to just roles of violence. While the violence and warfare are definitely a part of our story, it's also not all of the story, as some writers might try to have us believe.
1: Right. So Elion in the book um you discussed this, the, your idea that you previously mentioned of Comanche cinema, and how there have been competing visions of the signifier Comanche on and off screen, and often involving Comanches themselves. So before we, we get into the controversies surrounding the Long Ranger and the, the casting of Johnny Depp as Tonto, um, c- could you briefly summarize, I know this is uh, maybe too much to ask, but could you briefly summarize how Comanches have been represented in film, or the years, and and the extent or the limits of of Comanche's own agency in those representations?
0: Sure. You know, I separate it in Chapter 1. You know, I uh, early on, I, I do this work of trying to lay out, before we get to the Lone Ranger, as you said, trying to lay out some of the pre-Lone Ranger history. We're looking at about 100 years, uh, over 100 years, actually, uh, going back to 1907 with the film The Bank Robbery, um, co-starring Quana Parker. And uh, over 100 years of, of cinema that leads us toward, you know, more recent productions um, like Magnificent Seven and, and The Lone Ranger. And the three takes that I basically divided, divided into, you know, there's there's take one of listening to the silent era. Um, there's take two on um the predominance of Westerns and uh, almost like trying to search for uh, the Comancheria and often not finding it and finding these rather stereotypical and distorted uh, uh, signifiers of and representations of Comanches. And then there's take three that, you know, is unfolding as we speak, and especially in the 21st century here uh, of returning to La Comancheria, of returning to Comanche country and seeing filmmakers who are really trying to do that work and, and come back to the heart of Comancheria for, for, their, for their filmmaking. And so briefly, you know, take one, working with the silent films, the bank robbery, um, there's a film, Sign of the Smoke, that Quana's son, White Parker, is in. There's Daughter of Dawn, that his children, White Parker and Wanata Parker, They both co-starred in uh, Daughter of Dawn about 1920. Um, You know, there's those kinds of examples that we can look to of Comanches playing Comanches or in the case of Daughter of Dawn, it was an all Comanche and all Kiowa cast. And part of what was, I think, really playful and and humorous with that is you often had Comanches playing Kiowas and Kiowas playing Comanches in that film. Um, But you had an emphasis in critical response to those films as folks taking that as very authentic, which in cultural studies can be a, a very slippery kind of term. But I also hear where it's coming from that these are, you know, as one uh, reviewer said of, of white Parker's performance in sign of the smoke. I think he said, this was really real, <laughs> you know, like this, this seems so genuine and authentic. And these were, you know, Comanches playing versions of themselves. Um, but it also uh, was probably doing a lot of negotiating with the expectations that were being uh, uh, imposed upon Comanches and then also Comanches going forth and, and being themselves. I think when Quana Parker plays one of the good guys in the bank robbery and goes on to help, if not lead uh, the good guys in capturing the bank robbers, the bad guys there in uh, who have robbed the bank, the, the, what used to be the real bank of cash, Oklahoma, and near where quana uh, star home is, is uh, the star house is located. Uh, you know, he, he was, some ways playing himself, he was a pro- showing himself as a protector of of, of his homeland. Uh, but I think he also was was being playful with it. I think the the who's fooling whom was was playing out on camera, such as I highlight in in one particular moment uh, of him looking at the camera and even looking like he might halfway smirk. At the camera, and for backing that up with some evidence, um, you know, I went to the Library of Congress, and the folks there at the facilities in Culpeper, Virginia, found the original paper roll of the bank robbery, and they magnified it for me as best they could, and you know, sent me sent me images of of that, and it just it just held out for this possibility that. He was smirking ever so momentarily at the camera. Um, It was Hakura Madumata Kuitaka of, of who might be getting one over on whom and almost letting folks in on the idea that he knows, you know, he's not some backwards uncivilized individual who doesn't know what a video camera is, as some people might think, you know, for Comanches and others back then, but rather he's part of those who are making media. And so that continued on, um, has continued on throughout cinema, but really with the prevalence of Westerns and John Wayne star power, it starts building up in the 1930s, 40s, and you carry that into the 50s, where you go into the the second part of this, uh, where two films come out in the same year. You know, one of them goes on to be considered by some uh film historians as the greatest Western of all time. And that's The Searchers uh, by John Ford and starring John Wayne. And that film uh, plays into very ultra violent, hyper violent uh, representations of Comanches. And there are occasional some humanizing moments, but they really get overshadowed by a lot of uh, just disturbing representations of how Comanches are portrayed in a film that was partly inspired as the writer uh, of the novel for the Searchers that later got adapted into a screenplay, even the writer himself, you know, commented uh, as Glenn Frankel's research has, has revealed in Frankel's um, interesting book, also called The Searchers, about the making of that film and telling this behind the scenes story and on camera story of the Searchers and it's uh, of, of Natalie Wood's character, you know, a young white. Female being captured by Comanches and growing up among Comanches, very similar to, uh, in generally speaking, the story of my great 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 grandmother Cynthia Ann Parker, and and her own story of being captured and and as a young girl at age nine and about eighteen thirty six and being raised Comanche, um, but the ending of that film, and the so called ending of Cynthia Ann Parker's real life story really couldn't be more different in which in the film, John Wayne's character who plays her uncle, Ethan, very sadistic, anti-Indigenous, very anti-Comanche killer, you know, so-called rescues Natalie Wood's grown female character and takes her back home. She's resistant at first, but then she's recognizing that this is home and this is where she belongs, meanwhile all the other Comanches are annihilated and, and wiped out. And and the only Comanche who remains at the end of the film then is the white female. Whereas for Cynthia Ann Parker's own story, you know, Cynthia Ann Parker as our oral history repeatedly uh, continues to tell us, um, when she was so-called rescued by the Texas Rangers from Comanches decades later, you know she was already married. She has Quanah. She has two other children and that she was heartbroken and desperately tried to escape her white rescuers and tried to get back to her Comanche people. And it didn't happen as far as on this earth of being reunited with, um, you know, with her son, Quanah Parker, who also was looking for her. So there's these highly problematic and distorted visions, competing visions uh, of how representational jurisdictions playing out in the searchers and other Westerns, um, like another one from 1956 that was simply called Comanche, uh, that also that stars a character by the name of Quanah Parker. And it gets played by an Anglo actor, which I guess in some ways could work, uh, but uh, considering Quanah's own um, lineage. But at the same time, you know, you that's what repeatedly was happening, that non-natives, um, like German actors in The Searchers, you know, were playing uh, Henry Brandon was his name who played the lead Comanche in, in The Searchers, you know, repeatedly it was non-natives especially non-Comanches, who are playing these roles. And then when we fast forward more into uh, the 21st century, we're seeing this return, take three of return to La Comancheria, in which Comanches are, again, representing themselves on camera. And we also have such a growing number of Comanche filmmakers, Rod Polkowatchit and Jason Asenat, my cousin, Juliana Branham here in Norman, Um, going forth and doing this work to tell our stories, to tell Comanche stories, non-Comanche stories uh, of Uh, of representing and staking representational jurisdiction in independent cinema and through PBS, uh, sometimes through mainstream cinema, uh, through film consulting and production credits, through Gil Birmingham as a Comanche descent actor of what Gil Birmingham is doing uh, by breaking through into mainstream cinema and Hollywood, you know, going forth and telling these stories of sometimes Comanches representing Comanches and also Comanches filming. Uh, about Comanches. And that's what we continue to see unfold. And once again, this this push for so-called authenticity, you know, of when film crews reach out to me, that's usually the number one buzzword that they use is they want they want the truth. They want authenticity. And so then we go forth and we're back to, to talking about, well, here's my perspective and here's some of the research. But here's also some other folks you should really talk to in a collaborative kind of way, in a community based way. That's what we're seeing unfold right now, Joaquin, is more communal based filmmaking.
1: So Dustin, the, the core of the book revolves around the 2013 Disney production, The Lone Ranger. Um, tell us a little bit about the controversy surrounding the casting of Johnny Depp in the role of Tonto, uh, Tonto being a Comanche in this film, and his eventual adoption by Comanche, Comanche elder Ladonna Harris. Sure. So that
0: that really is what catapulted this this book into, into motion um, was... Uh, later once Comanches, real Comanches became involved in the Lone Ranger. And so when we back up to about 2008, uh, that's when Disney uh, brought Johnny Depp on stage uh, at one of their big publicity events in in Los Angeles. And he came out wearing a Lone Ranger mask and said they were saying that he was going to be in this new production of the Lone Ranger. And everybody was just assuming since he's got the mask on uh, that he must be playing the white title character. And there are a lot of folks who wish that had been the case and 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 been the, the, the truth. Uh, but he revealed uh, very soon thereafter that no, he would be playing Tonto. And it was going to, at some point, they made the decision to have this be a Comanche version of Tonto instead of Potawatomi, as he often was in the radio or television series, or was just tribeless and almost this uh, pan-native kind of character for for all natives, uh, and, and with the broken English and the, the sidekick role um, that he's so known for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so in this case, Johnny Depp playing Tonto, um, they wanted to make him Comanche to recognize that since the Lone Ranger is a Texas Ranger, let's go with the people who are... Um, most arguably most associated perhaps along with Apaches, uh, they're in Texas and let's, let's make him Comanche. And then once they bring on, uh, Comanche, they hired Comanche consultants, William Volker and Troy, uh, from SIA, it's our word for feather, um, and the, um, the Eagle and Feather repository that they run there in surreal Oklahoma to this day, uh, right. an incredible archive and, uh, trove of, of knowledge that, that they put forth and continue to, to go forth with, uh, once they were brought in as consultants, uh, for, for the, the Lone Ranger, uh, it was pretty soon thereafter that, um, while, while they, while they were filming in New Mexico, um, that, uh, My auntie LaDonna Harris, who has a good relationship uh, with Volker and Troy there at SIA, uh, she heard about Johnny Depp playing this Comanche role. And, you know, she was familiar with uh, some of his previous roles and work in which that he had done where he played often non-native characters, but also um, in films like The Brave, uh, where he played a native character and then in. Jim Jarmusch's film uh, from 1996, uh, The Dead Man, Man, uh, which he played a white character, but was almost like a sidekick to the native character to Gary Farmer's character. Um, So there's, and there's also Johnny Depp's own uh, claims to being indigenous. um, And, uh, you know, the folks at SIA had said, you know, on record that, you know, after visiting with him and his family that, you know, they didn't doubt that there's indigenous ancestry there. And while the tribe, Um, That he is affiliated with may be unclear, um, you know, that uh, that he has stories of a great grandmother and, you know, who may very well, you know, been indigenous. And there was just a number of things happening at that time where uh, the Cherokee freedmen, you know, were being disenrolled by their very own people there in Oklahoma. And my auntie was reading about them and reading about Johnny Depp and hearing of his claims to being indigenous, being denied, being rejected uh, and being ridiculed and scorned. And she was like, you know, he's playing a Comanche. And it's like uh, she told me in an interview once, you know, She wanted to go do, you know, she said, I want to go do what what Comanche women back in the day would have done. We're going to go capture Johnny Depp. And Mm -hmm. and she did it. You know, she went through a formal uh, Comanche adoption ceremony that was led by Volker and Troy there at uh, Auntie LaDonna's house in Albuquerque. Uh, And she essentially captured him. She continued, you know, some of the history uh, of captivity. She did it in a uh, serious and obviously a playful way, uh, but she also, as a longtime activist in Washington, D.C., and as the star of uh, the film uh, Indian 101, LaDonna Harris, uh, that was filmed by uh, our relative, uh, Juliana Branham for PBS, you know, she, she is smart. She is very business savvy and astute, and she was also, um, while playing with history, she also was building up more of cultural capital for Comanches. And while Depp was met with controversy and mixed reactions, she also was met with controversy and mixed reactions. Uh, but at the end of the day, she was doing like she does of building bridges and being inclusive and in effect, getting to know Johnny Depp. And then that led to her bringing Johnny Depp back home to Comanche country and in visiting multiple times for, you know, red carpet premiere, the Lone Ranger that was exclusively for Comanche Nation members before the rest of the world got to see it and coming back home and, and visiting with our young people uh, and, and really just trying to build some, some relationships that she's so known for doing. And so that is when I realized there is so much more to the story of what could be told in cinematic Comanches so much more than just reducing it to Johnny Depp being cast as an Indian. And then you got the two main camps of people who support that and the people who reject it. And then enter LaDonna Harris from stage left or stage West from Albuquerque and, um, really complicated
1: things. Mm Mm-hmm. So focusing on the film itself, um, to what extent do you think uh, Comanche characters are developed or underdeveloped in the movie? You know, it's a film that uh,
0: there is so much potential in, in what it could do. And it's a film that, as my relative Marty Chot Smith says, it, it has its moments. You know, it's a film that, um, like Ladonna's Harris said, of... Um, of her capturing Comanche, you know, she, she said serially, comically, you know, we, we adopted him or we captured him so that we could teach him, you know, how to act Comanche, how to, <laughs> how to, how to go forth and represent Comanches and her work and especially the work of the consultants. Uh, There's so much commendable work that they did um, that other Native actors on set of visiting with with Johnny Depp, Saginaw Grant, and Gil Birmingham, and others, of what they were doing, you know, the relationships were developing. And uh, I think Depp went in with a very sincere, uh, heartfelt, good intent. Uh, of trying to humanize the Tonto character and trying to humanize Comanche people, um, and yet uh, those moments that we see on camera of uh, Comanches maybe outsmarting the cavalry, or uh, you know certain Comanche songs that are playing that. Uh, Volker and Troy helped to set up actual recordings of real Comanches back home that Disney came and, you know, made sure to include and, and work with um, those moments of hearing that and certain uh, material things that that Depp's Tonto carries um, on his person. It, those moments at the end of the two and a half hour or so film uh, too often get drowned out. You know, drowned out by um, such whitewashing that um, that Disney and uh, and the script itself uh, put forth in their own control of so much of the representational jurisdiction, um, and Johnny Depp becomes someone who is kind of in between these these camps of Disney and of uh, the consultants, and while there's these collaborations happening. Um, and while there's stories of folks working together in good ways on set, you know the final product uh, reduces all the Comanches except for Tonto to approximately just nine minutes of footage in an over 150 minute film. Tonto is, of course, in a lot of it, but in some ways, it really wasn't his story. I mean, he's the narrator. In, in doing this flashback from a Wild West exhibit, um, a noble savage exhibit that he's essentially breaks out of at the end of the film. Um, but he's doing this flashback narration and it's so much about the Thaivos. It's about the white folks. <laughs> <laughs> and the Calvary once again wins and they wipe out all of the Comanches except for Tonto. Uh, the Comanche women, especially, are highly marginalized uh, to basically one second of a close-up shot of when they see these white villains coming into their Comanche village and the camera does one second of a close-up on them and then they basically help bring the white villains back to good health and um, and then they're wiped out by, by the white villains. You know, it's repeatedly these massacres that happen. And I think part of what was happening was Disney's liberal intentions of trying to say, look at what happened to Comanches. But it presented so many of us, our history, our ancestors, as victims. Um, and as gone, as past tense. And there could be anything but that today of how present we are, over 16,000 citizens strong and countless captives across North America of of Comanche uh, ancestry out there. So the film, again, has its moments um, and it had possibilities of what it could have went on to do. Uh, But I think what we saw was the result of a white director and Gore Verbinski who is very skilled at what he does, but he told a story that would be something he has probably been more familiar with. And I wouldn't expect him to be able to go forth and tell a Comanche centric story, um, given his own positionalities and his own background and the films that he's done. Um, So I think there's also the possibility of if, if Johnny would, come back to Comanche country and there's other films that can be done with Comanches and with the consultants, uh, with Comanche actors, Um, I think sky's the limit on what could actually happen with that kind of platform and that kind of star power for Comanche people.
1: Mm -hmm. So speaking as a reader now, um, to me, one of the most interesting sections of the book is the one where you discuss how different audiences received and, and reacted to the film. So when it when it began to garner negative reviews, the film producers tried to counter by highlighting the supposedly good reception that uh, the movie had obtained among what they called the Native American community, right? And I'm putting this in quotation marks. What are the implications of these types of broad generalizations about indigenous people, and, and how did Comanches in particular react to the film?
0: Yeah, great two part question there, Joaquin. You know, they were doing this damage control, right? Uh, <laughs> and and uh, I remember Army Hammer, uh, white actor who played the the title role you know, saying, oh, but, but Native Americans love it, right? And I think his sample was limited to about a half a dozen folks. Right. Uh, he didn't name names, but um, I think he was limiting that to the few that he was interacting with and maybe on some publicity stops, you know, some other natives that, that they had worked with along the way. Uh, but it, it became yet another example of when Hollywood... Can hold up the opinion of a few as standing in for the opinion of all, and it becomes dehumanizing. And uh, I could imagine to some insulting. Um, true, there are Comanches uh, who been very you know responded very positively to this film, um, and then there have been Comanches who uh, despise this film. And uh, for me, myself. You know, I went into that advanced screening uh, of the film in in Lawton, in Comanche country with ambivalence, and I emerged from the theater with still ambivalence. I came <laughs> out surprised at some moments of like, hey, there's something happening here. Hey, there's some ties to Quanah Parker with, you know, how the elder uh, Tonto Version that Johnny Depp's playing with the old man makeup of of how he's appearing. Um, I think you know there's some folks who did s- some research in in how they wanted to portray you know Comanches, and of course there's the good work that the consultants did and um, what they were able to do and and what they could try to bring to that film. Uh, but again, there is also so much that um of of someone else's story you know others trying to speak for us and that's what happened in these responses uh army hammer and verbinski and others were as if trying to speak for us in in the press and going on fox news and and other platforms and And giving a very one-sided picture. So when you enter Comanches into this, there were Comanches quoted by NPR who saying, "Yeah, you know, they were surprised that the film it included some Comanche words. They liked hearing it. You know, they were pleasantly surprised. Um, They didn't think they were put down at all." And then there were other Comanches who showed up um, on you know episodes of the call-in show Native America Calling. Um, And there were other natives who showed up on Al Jazeera television and other outlets talking about this film, saying that, yeah, you know, this this film, it it, it wasn't bringing forth the justice that that they hoped that, you know, producers were were saying that it would um, that it would do at the end of the day. And so what happened, what unfolded was, you know, you have a number of examples where in that chapter I quote. I would think at least 50 different Comanches which is still very limited but I did limit a lot of this to what was unfolding in the media borderlands that is in interviews um in conversations I was having in uh, in podcasts in the in in media of how Comanches were responding to Comanche representation and what was happening with especially with some Comanches was they were rerouting the conversation from pan native american conversations, they were rerouting it from um, just, you know, one-sided discourse, and they were getting more into the shades of gray, and they were getting more into the nuances of how this was playing out. And they could, you know, it was, of course, Comanches who could read certain cultural nuances and Comanche-centric representations through this film and give perspectives that, uh, I don't think the producers would even know where to begin of how to articulate those kinds of ideas. It would be, that would be more of what the Comanche consultants and Comanche critics could do with that film in responding in much more diverse, and nuanced ways. And that chapter um, on audience is just unapologetic, unapologetically um, privileging what Comanches have to say. And I don't necessarily try to say if something's right or wrong or make judgments like that, but I wanted to mm-hmm. synthesize Comanche perspectives into this larger conversation about what Comanches have to say about that film. And it was doing, I hope, the work that my auntie, Nita Pataponi, to whom the book is dedicated, that it was doing what she said of when stories come together, that that's when the magic happens. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was doing with that chapter of trying to bring so many different stories together from Comanches speaking about Comanches.
1: Right. And, and in that sense, I think, um, you know, in the books afterward, you, you challenge the simplistic notion of a, a Comanche rise and fall, right? Instead you, mm-hmm. you remind the readers that the Comanche story is still unfolding and you include a, a call for today's command is to continue and to expand their involvement in telling their story through film and media. And as you, as you point out in ways that are empowering and, and enriching. So I think mm-hmm. that's an important uh, message there that I, I really appreciate at the end of your book. So thank you very much for your explanations, Dustin. Yes. Now thank you, Joaquin. What, what are you working on now? Do you have any ongoing projects?
0: Yeah. So, uh, My work, especially in uh, Comanche sound studies, uh, getting ready to do some field work, more recordings back home uh, in the Wichita Mountains that are uh, situated in very competing jurisdictions of Comanche country, of the city of Lawton, and of the U.S. Army uh, base, uh, Fort Sill, um, a place of uh, forced captivity for us and for Apaches and others, you know, uh, centuries ago. And uh, recording... Uh, some of the natural soundscapes there and also the artillery testing, uh, the booms of, of the, uh, the cannons and the, the artillery that uh, resonates very loudly uh, on just about any given weekday uh, there in the Wichita Mountains. And looking at these and listening to these colliding soundscapes uh, of how those are unfolding and following some of the history of Fort Sill uh, and, and Comanche people, the Comanche presence there, and even Comanches at Fort Sill. Um, Mm -hmm. whether imprisoned or whether being stationed there in later years as soldiers themselves. Uh, And so looking at those uh, coexisting relationships through oral approaches of of critically listening uh, or what we call as Tavitsinak, Tavitsinak of of closely listening to our surroundings. And then I'm also doing uh, a lot of work in uh, indigenous and Comanche theater, just came off of uh, having a short play premiere at um, at the Autry, uh at the Native voices of the Autry Play Festival in November there in Los Angeles um, and was glad to see that you know it picked up uh, a couple of awards for a short play called 911 Comancheria and continuing to write a number of short plays as well as a larger uh, full-length uh, children's play. Um, called Comanche Girl on the Moon, um, that gets into uh, some of my auntie's old uh, animal stories and uh, is inspired by her f- uh, painting uh, when Comanche women could fly and animals could talk, and following that through the story of a contemporary Comanche girl uh, who, who goes to the moon in her late kaku or grandmother's rocket ship to the moon, and mm-hmm. and just various. Um, humorous adventures unfold in which she tries to learn about herself and learns about the animals and, and, and reclaim some of the relationship with what we call the, 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 Namamua or the Comanche moon, um, uh, this, the, the, nightlight that, that, that we use to, to help guide us at night, um, and to go forth and tell some really more Comanche centric stories to do that, uh, on stage for audiences.
1: Well, thank you very much for sharing with the audience of New Books Network, some of the nuances of your book, Dustin. It has been a pleasure to chat with you and good luck with your projects. I look forward to interviewing you again soon.
0: Ura! Oh, that that sounds good. Yeah, well, Uda. Thank you,
1: Joaquin. Uda heights. And to all of you, many thanks for listening to New Books Network. Kindest regards, and I'll say goodbye for the present.